Satish. Your lore is a that powerhouse. Absolutely could, could also be my therapist. Her demeanor, her style of <laughs> conversation, her ability to just articulate in such a fun manner. I feel like if she ever wants to become a psychologist, I would book sessions all day. I love like, that. Talk to me, girl. Do you know what? As, as early stage founders, we focus on our product. We focus on our service and things like that. And Laura is just bringing this new perspective about people, how critically important these, but not only how important people are, how we should be managing our people that we bring into our circle to help us grow our businesses. Yeah. And, and we touched on this idea of targets on CEO. Some of this stuff is really interesting because as a, as a lifetime CEO, this is the first time I feel threatened to, to be myself because everything is recorded. Everything is taken out of context. Everything is public. And this idea of the culture being the secret sauce is gone because you know what everybody's culture is because everybody's talking about shit. And online, you either love or hate. There's no middle ground. So if a good business with a good management has got a nice culture, Everything exposed now. And the villains are crucified. It's a very exciting episode. If you're scaling, if you're growing, if you're a CEO, if you're an employee or you're an employee becoming a CEO or a CEO hiring a bunch of people, this is an episode that's a must listen, I think. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On year one, we speak to early stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Laura, welcome to year one. Thrilled to have you on our podcast. And I'm going to start off by asking you to give us a little bit of your background. Tell us about baby Laura, teenage Laura. Adolescent Laura and the Laura that we have today in front of us, what has shaped you into the person that you are? Oh, wow. That's such a great question. Thank you so much for having me. So baby Laura was born in Ottawa, Canada, and I think at a very young age, she always had dreams of escaping the capital, the small capital city and living and working internationally. As a young child, I was very social. My parents joked that I would walk up and talk to anybody, and they were actually quite concerned that I might be abducted because I would chat about anything to anyone at any time. And very young, I got the the bug, the working bug. And so as soon as I could, I took the babysitting course and started babysitting for local kids. But prior to that, I really wanted, even at 10 years old, I wanted to work, but I wasn't old enough to work and I wasn't old enough to babysit. And so some friends and I started a company called Happy Birthday INC, where we planned and entertained at kids' birthday parties. We dressed up as clowns, Barbies, whatever, and went and did crafts and songs with kids. And when I had the idea, my parents helped me print out a flyer on Print Shop, if you remember that program, if you were a child of the 80s. And we put Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah, near the kindergarten room of my, my public school. I think my parents never thought anybody would call. One day, an adult voice called for Laura. My parents screened the call, and, and it was our first client. And we went on to, I think, have 10 different clients. We did company Christmas parties. 
And that was where I first got the taste for leadership, entrepreneurship. But oddly enough, I I went in a very different direction in that I, I probably went to the most sort of bureaucratic and non-entrepreneurial place possible as a kid growing up in Ottawa and and ended up working in the federal government. And how I ended up there was went, left Ottawa for school, got into a prestigious program at U of T. And like many people in my 20s, I recognized that I, I was struggling with my mental health. And that was the first sign that I, I would have a, a challenge with depression that is that is led me through my entire life. And so I ended up having to leave my program to seek treatment and ended up back in Ottawa, Canada, fell into government, which was an area that I never intended to be so that I could be closer to family and some great support services here in the Ottawa area. Big shout out to the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Foundation. They they made a big difference in my life in my early 20s and did about six years in government and was very quickly promoted and, and sent to work with deputy ministers and some of the associate deputy ministers and leadership because I was the person that you could put in front of people and come up with creative solutions and speak confidently with executive leadership. But at 30, I, after buying a place in Ottawa and sort of committing myself to this life, I said, is this all there is? I saw a lot of really talented young executives spending most of their time dealing with their lowest performers and the very little ability to move people into different roles or move people out. And so I wanted to see what life was like the, on the other side in the private sector and ended up throwing my hat in the ring. I was an early adopter of LinkedIn and threw my hat in the ring for a job in employee relations with H&M Canada. And the rest is history. H&M really propelled me to a global career in HR. With them, I was able to live and work in Toronto, Canada, do an assignment in Japan, work with colleagues all over the world, and then ended up in New York City, where I've spent the last six years working for H&M, Aritzia, and most recently, a health tech company called Tia. And I think, you know, that that little girl who was so confident and really believed that there was a better, more creative way, who sought solutions, who was curious about the world and, and what was out there for her, has was very still alive inside of me. And so in 2023, I made the decision to leave the, my last company and begin my own journey in entrepreneurship. So much to unpack. Yes. Laura, this is an amazing, <laughs> amazing journey. I'm curious to learn about home life because now ah. there's little, little Laura saying, hey, I want to start a, a happy birthday company. <laughs> yeah. And, and your parents are like, let's make flyers. What are they like? Are they entrepreneurial? No. Or, where, where are your parents? My parents were both teachers. And yeah, yeah. But I think they always encouraged my brother and I to put ourselves in the way of opportunity and to make sure that we had options. So of course, for them, that meant doing well in school, but it also meant exposing us to things like theater and as in when we could afford it travel and different kinds of friends with different family setups and different types of activities. And so they were always really good at nurturing our curiosities. And I think this was one example of that. 
That is so mm-hmm. awesome. I must just tell you quickly, Satish. I actually regret that my peop- my parents weren't teachers because this is the second person that we've spoken to now. You remember we had a conversation just the other day, and the guest that we had on the podcast, her parents was also her parents were also teachers, and mm-hmm. they said to her that you can be whatever you want as long as you're the best at what you do, mm-hmm. right? And they Dr. Ronke. encouraged her. They encouraged her to go out there yeah. and and take on the world. Mm-hmm. Your parents, teachers have done exactly the same that have said, mm-hmm. you know what, you need to explore, you need to experiment, you need to do all these things. So I, so first of all, I regret my parents weren't teachers, but <laughs> secondly, I mean, so although they weren't entrepreneurs, right, where did this entrepreneurial spirit come from? Did you witness it in other people or was it just something you said, you know what, I just need to go out there and because of my parents, I'm mm-hmm. happy to take risks and do whatever I want. Or did you see other people and said, you know what, aspirationally, that's what I want to be. I want to be working for myself one day. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think there's always been, I've always had this sense of wonder and really believing that anything is possible. And I think as a kid that expressed itself by daydreaming and maybe a little naivete about how the world was. But I've been really lucky. I mean, I'm not a very spiritual person, but I do think that somewhere I I describe it as sometimes I look up like I think there's a grander plan for all of us. And I. I just always felt that each step propels us towards where we're meant to be. And now I'm starting to see that theme through my life of just trying and right mm-hmm. it was a simple flyer it could have been nothing but it ended up being a real focus for two years of my life as a really young kid and taught me really important skills and that's what I'm trying to do again now as an adult I think I lost touch with that little Laura that had that sense of wonder and I'm, I'm rediscovering her again one of the things I like about your business is it is very people focused mm-hmm. but I'm also curious if the old Added just true of show me your friends and I'll tell you how far you're gonna go in life. Yes. Yeah. What were your what were your friends like? Were they like you? What was your top five? That's interesting. I think I, I did have a lot of friends that have in my young life that has have gone on to be very successful. I have other friends who have not have stayed in Ottawa and have were very content in their government jobs or have started families and some, some of whom are entrepreneurs or self-employed. I think my parents always taught me to be very, they taught me to be a great conversationalist, to be polite and thankful. And I think what, to be able to speak to adults as well, not just only other kids. And I think what that did is it got me into rooms where I wouldn't have been otherwise. And it has helped people to feel comfortable around me, to develop trust and credibility with people fairly quickly. And so that's also helped me to connect to people who have supported me along my journey, whether it was my director at the federal government, who's now a friend who... I used to joke that when I saw her coming around, I was the first cubicle from the elevator. 
and I saw her coming around my direction, I knew she was going to ask me to do something. And the the 20 year old Laura was like, oh, gosh, why is she delegating this to me again? But the 41 year old Laura realized that she knew I could do it and it would be an opportunity for me. So she would do that. So whether it was her or some someone on a committee that I was with at, at some point, each of those connections has helped to propel me in the direction that I've gone in. And and I've been very, very lucky as a result. Laura, do you mind if we talk a little bit about mental health? And I know this is not the yes, purpose of yes, this podcast, absolutely. but so back in my twenties, I had a motor car accident. And mm-hmm. after having the accident, I suffered with debilitating anxiety mm-hmm. to the point that I probably spent the better part of four months in bed where I wouldn't even go to work, couldn't get into a motor car. I couldn't do anything. It was crippling, right? Mm-hmm. And I reached the point in my life where I said, you know what? I can't carry on like this. There's no point in my life if I'm just going to spend my life in bed. Mm -hmm. And I went on this journey of trying to overcome my fears. And it it was a long journey. I mean, it took me probably the better part of 18 months before I was able to conquer that. And you mentioned now that you had challenges with mental health as well. Mm -hmm. And my question to you, sir. We've got a lot of people out there that have this desire to do something, but they're crippled by anxiety or they're crippled by the inability to move forward. Mm -hmm. What were the things that you did that you didn't turn mental health into a crutch, but rather Mm. an enabler? Gosh, that is a great question. And I really, really empathize with those people because I've been there. I... I I resent the expression happiness is an inside job because there are some of us that are have had either traumatic experiences in life or our brain chemistry is as such that it makes happiness really difficult. That said, we are the common denominator and so there ha- there has to be a willingness to try. And it might take 18 months. It might take the better part of 20 years as it has for me. But if we can simply take one step, I was saying this to somebody the other day, like if if we can just do one thing every day in favor of our future selves, it it makes all the difference. And so for me, I've I've had, I've cycled through mental illness and wellness for the better part of 20 years. And I think that there's just been that this one part of me that has committed to not giving up, even when times have been really difficult. And that's been the the difference for me. I think the other thing is self-advocacy is really important. I love that. Yeah. And in finding your voice to say, I need more help I, or simply I need help <laughs> to, to someone, anyone is really important. And if you can't self-advocate to find somebody that's willing to do that for you, because another thing, you know, that's been so wonderful about my parents is that when I was in my early twenties and I was struggling and I didn't see how challenging it was. And mind you, that was, so I'm 41, going to be 42 in May, that this was like 20 years ago now. 
And there weren't the campus services that there are today. There wasn't the public dialogue about mental health. Exactly. And so I really relied on them and was lucky to have them. And my, my mother literally like knocked on everyone's door to get me the help that I needed. And so I... It hope that for others, there's that one person in your life that's willing to not give up for you when you when you can't find the will to keep going. So that's another important piece. Absolutely love that. So let's talk about the people, yeah. people. Yes. Give us the elevator pitch. Tell us about your business. Yes. So the people, people is a heart centered people and culture consultancy, and it was born out of the hypothesis that many organizations in early stages feel the pressure either from their board, investors, or potentially themselves and emerging issues in in their growing company to hire a really senior people leader right out of the gate and to create differentiated people practices to attract talent to a new company or an emerging company or idea or brand. And what I learned over the last few years working in my first startup was that oftentimes companies overshoot on what they need and hire for what they need tomorrow instead of the tactical utility player that they need today. So what I hope to do is act as a fractional executive for companies coming in to help them architect their people and culture strategy and really getting to the nuts and bolts of what they need today and hiring towards that. And then acting as a mentor to both the executive team and their tactical player to help them grow their business and and hire at the right time. So what I saw in my own journey is that I was hired as the VP of people when the company was just under 70. By the time I joined and actually started working with the company, we were about 81 employees. And I was literally moving documents from point A to point B. I was writing the policies. I was making sure payroll ran correctly, looking into workers' compensation insurance. And these were things that I had never done and that were likely tasks that weren't I, the, the word that's coming to mind is worthy, but the, the, it's not worthy. It's the, the founders shouldn't have been spending that that precious capital on on my salary to do that. There likely could have been a more junior player doing those tasks with me coming in a couple of hours of work at, a week and coaching them. And what I so desperately needed in that role was a, a person who had been there, done that. I was working for first time founders. And I mean, they they couldn't direct me. They had never done this either. And so I needed not the theoretical type of coaching. Like if you could have that conversation, how would you have it? Well, it was literally like, don't worry about this. Go here. Don't get ADP for your first payroll software because that's going to be a nightmare to implement. Get this. Somebody that had actually done it that could guide and coach me along the way on those priorities and help me then to develop enhanced credibility with the executive team because, you know, we would have had that voice of that person that had been on the journey and Mm. real data to their recommendations or experiences, case studies. So let's talk about from a pitch perspective, Mm -hmm. now that you're on the hot seat, Laura. Yes. 
Who is your ideal customer? And Dion, let's never get ADP as an as a sponsor. <laughs> I mean, ADP is great. I will say, if you're a retail client and you have a proper a proper payroll and infrastructure, it's great. But what wasn't especially great for me. <laughs> but that's a learning, right? And and for them for them too about how they can better tailor their products to no 100 percent. yeah okay well yeah. pitch my pitch what is my ideal client so i would love to work with early stage companies so seed to series c today i'm working with a couple of seed stage companies in helping them architect their people strategy but i'm also working with larger private companies that are expanding their operations to the united states so I speak Canadian. I now speak American, having lived in my country for six years. And I understand that the nuances between both countries. And one thing that I'm really interested in now actually is, is developing something, whether it's a training or a workshop or, or something online to help Canadian executives that are moving to the United States to learn about those cultural differences. Because as much as we are the same, we are very different and how to show up credibly with your new employee group. And then lastly, emerging retail brands. It's what I mean by that is companies that have been traditionally DTC, direct-to-consumer, who have had a very small physical retail footprint that are expanding. Because what I've noticed in conversations with some of those companies is that they've focused on product development, influencer strategy, all the sexy stuff, and the not-so-sexy stuff around, like, how do you actually open a brick and mortar store, hire and retain those staff and train them to give a differentiated customer experience is lacking. And that's where my experience at H&M and Aritzia comes in on how to do that well. Can we explore people management for a little bit, if oh, you don't yes. mind? And I've got yes. so many different questions that I want to ask. So let me start. I only have pain and scar. Oh, pain I'm and sure. Scar. Yeah, people are hard. You can have you can have a great product. Everything can be fine tuned, but people is the one variable you can't control. Absolutely. So you start on the positive side, Dion, and then we'll end up in my yeah. my scary okay. side. After. Well, well, you go ahead. I, I don't know if I'm starting on the positive side. So I've worked in many organizations of different sizes, and mm -hmm. there's always a question about how transparent you should be. Right. Mm. So there's the argument that if you are really transparent, you could be exploited. So mm -hmm. be transparent around your financial information, how the company is doing, mm -hmm. etc. Like people could exploit that. On the other hand, being very transparent, people could become anxious if the company is not doing exceptionally well. Right. So what I'm really interested in understanding is what is that right balance or should companies err more on the side of being completely mm. transparent to get the buy-in and support or is there an, a scenario where you need to hide what's actually happening from your people? Yeah, that's a good one. So, okay. So I think if we had talked four years ago, my answer would have been different. But seeing Gen Zs in the workplace and our whole experience with COVID, I feel like there's been this acceleration to the workplace of the future where 
today's employee is very well connected digitally, information travels at a very high speed, and employees are looking for more information. They feel that they have, I think COVID really brought this to the surface, that employees feel that they've been exploited. They haven't been paid fairly. They've been made to work in unsafe or un untolerable working conditions. And I think what we saw with the great resignation is that there was this, this period where employees were becoming a lot more vocal about what they were willing to tolerate and what they weren't willing to tolerate. And they, my feeling is Gen Z and our folks coming into our workplaces now want more information. And we see this in the way that information is being shared on sites like Glassdoor, uh, work experience or being experiences are being shared on TikTok, LinkedIn, other social media sites, Instagram. And we see this in the way that states are actually adopting new laws around transparency around salary, for example. And so I, my view is that we need to treat people like they're adults and we need to also be clear about what we can do and what we can't do. So I think we need to be transparent about things that pertain to the employee and their experience, the work that they do. But we also need to recognize that there's certain information, if given, employees need to make the choice to hold that information within the virtual walls or four walls of the company or bear the burden of like not sharing it. And so I think I think it, it depends is my answer. But I, I think how I would would tend to approach things and, and, and the types of work companies that I want to work with and are, are of the mind that sharing some information is good and other information we won't share, but we'll, we will tell you why we're not sharing it. Okay. My turn, my turn, my turn. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm 48 mm -hmm. and I've had one job for 25 years, CEO. Right. And in one part of my life, a CEO was really glorified unemployment because nobody understood entrepreneurship. Right. You don't have a nine to five, you're unemployed, whatever your fancy title is. Then it became a, 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 a title of appreciation. Mm -hmm. Here's somebody who's taking the risk. They're putting their mortgage on the line. They're investing their time and money. They're hiring people. They're giving people the chance. Now I feel like we're in a phase where the CEO title is a target, meaning you can't do anything wrong because everything is public. Mm -hmm. And I'm playing the devil's advocate in my head because there's a recent thing with, I think, Andy and, and the pity city and it's all oh, over. Oh, yes. You know, yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> I was just but talking I'm also about thinking, that. Yeah. Right. And I was thinking, uh, imagine if for every story where an employee says, I just woke up today and I got fired and they're emotionally displaying their thing on TikTok. What if I logged on and say, today I walked into work at nine o'clock and eight people came in at 9.06. Mm -hmm. And then they went to the kitchen and hung up for a chit chat and drank the coffee I provided. Then they finally decide to get working at about 10.15. But 11.30, they decide to go for lunch. Yeah. What if we, as management, started to now, oh, I mean, iPhone and I makes everybody blind. 
I love that quote. Mm -hmm. But I feel like from your business perspective, what is the target on CEOs now? Yeah. We're just humans mm -hmm. taking risks. Yeah. But there seems to be a target on them now. Love to see what you think from a business perspective and how do you maybe want to step into that if your business is something that could do that for people? I mean, this is, it's interesting. I was, I was talking with my mom about that exact situation last night and how you're right. Like what's internal is external now. You don't know who's recording the Zoom. You don't know. Each of us has a video camera, a camera, an audio recording device in our hand. So this is something I, I've talked about with executive teams over the last several years is whatever messaging we're sharing and how we're sharing it, we just need to be prepared that it would be something we'd be comfortable with the public knowing. And that's an, an unfortunate reality. I do agree with you that the CEO and leadership is a, is a target. I think the stories that are gaining traction right now are stories like this, where the CEO is paid X million dollars a year. These employees aren't getting bonuses. And the CEO said this. And that's the unfortunate reality. Now, I think that what is important is to be human. I think you have to choose your words wisely. And I also think that we, we you know, it's, it's a struggle because I don't know that this is the exciting news headline, but the reality of that example that you cited earlier was the CEO that you're talking about is the, the CEO of, our, of a, a retail and wholesale company for furniture. And their sales are down, I think, by 4%. Therefore, bonuses aren't being awarded. A bonus is not a, a guaranteed part of your compensation. It is awarded when mm -hmm. he is achieving certain metrics. We do need to be concerned about how we're going to make up that shortfall because if we don't do that some of us may not have a job now i'm mm -hmm. conflicted as well because is it fair that there are employees that are earning barely living wage and then you've got a ceo earning five million dollars a year well maybe not but are we we do live in a capitalist structure and so like Unless we're all willing, and this this might be a bit controversial, but I sometimes think unless we're all willing to sort of give up our position and our rights and collectively go to the streets and show up to vote, pressure our governments for change, et cetera, that's the structure. And so we need to learn how to live within it and understand it. And so I think mm -hmm. that also we need also to hear stories of like, what is it like working in a for-profit company? And these are some of the things that you might encounter and, and to educate folks on that. I also think we I love that. stories about like what there are some CEOs that are really showing up that are taking pay cuts right now that are. And I mean, this is one example. I think I recently read about the new CEO at Starbucks that said, he will be working in stores one day a week because it's really important for him. Like, I want to see more examples like that as well, because there right. are also founders and CEOs that are are trying to connect with their business and trying to do the right thing for their employees. Yeah. Mm, it's my turn. It's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like a consulting session. Yeah. But, so, Laura. Slash therapy. Yes. Therapy, yes. absolutely. So, Laura. That's what we do in HR as well, therapy. <laughs> as, as, as a business owner. Yes. Your work ethic is 
nine to three the next morning, seven days a week, right? Mm -hmm. You push yourself. You know that I need to invest this. You bring people on board. Mm. Those people are nine to fives, right? right? And you sit there and you go, fuck, these people are just not as passionate as I am. Yeah. But the reality is they're not owning your business. They're not running your business. They don't right. have that same drive. How do you, as the founder of the business, because what happens is you go down a spiral where you start mm -hmm. questioning their commitment. You start questioning mm -hmm. their value to the organization because they don't live those same work ethic expectations that you have. So what advice mm -hmm. do you have for early stage founders about how do you manage and reconcile that in your mind? Yeah. So, did you know that you were going to be interrogated on this episode? Yeah, no, no, but this is great. These are great. I love the way that this is stretching my my mind. Okay, so I had, I think I had an understanding of this early because one of my early career experiences was working for a small business owner. She had her own labor relations consulting company, and I was the twenty year old kid that was like watching the clock. I was in when I was supposed to be in. I was out when I was supposed to be out because it was summer and I wanted to be hanging with my friends. And I could see how tough it was for her and how many hours she was putting in and the fact that no one could ever have the same degree of commitment as she did. I think as I've learned about the comp structures and, and sort of philosophies of and ways of working in various businesses, I think that there are ways that from very early on, you can incentivize and encourage folks to act like an owner. I think that happens in the way that you reward people financially. I think that happens in the way that you reward symbolically certain behaviors in the organization, the way that you give feedback, et cetera. And I think as the one, I, I think you have to be a little bit crazy to be a founder. And I don't mean that in a derogatory yes. sense, but you I mean it in a, maybe I need to say you have to be a little bit idealistic. You have to be willing to to push the bounds. And I think. No, you were right the first time. You yeah. got to be crazy as hell. There needs you to be. Right yeah, there needs to be a deep recognition that not everybody is built like that. And so what am I willing to tolerate and what am I not willing to tolerate? And so and, and recognizing that not everyone is going to have the drive to stay up till 3 a.m. Some people have who are very brilliant, very talented, can't because they have, you know, kids getting up at five in the morning and things like that. And so there there sometimes needs to be a moment of saying, OK, this is how I work and this is how other people work. These are the terms that we're contracting on as an organization and recognize I'm going to feel a feeling sometimes when I don't feel like I can clock out and other people are. That's going to give me the rub. But those are the terms that we agreed on. And, and in these ways, they're really showing up and doing a great job for the company. And if they're that, not, Laura, you need a great HR professional like me to help move them on. <laughs> Listen, in our short conversation, you're really good. I can see the passion oh, that comes you. through. Before we get to a bit more about your business growth as an individual, mm -hmm. one last question about the business, just to close it up. Yeah. So we know what you do. You know why you do it. We know the kind of businesses you go after. People that are engaging with you, 
what are the top two or three benefits, outcomes, results that somebody working with you will feel yeah. over a certain amount of time? Yeah. So I think one is really being, I think, avoiding some of the same mistakes I made, right? When I first started out and being ahead of your being ahead of things when it comes to your HR structure. So I was talking to a prospective client today about, you know, how I think a lot of startups accumulate HR debt, just like they accumulate tech debt. So you finally hire your first HR leader and payroll is running funky. You've got documents all over the place. And before they can make drive impact and results, they're having to clean up all of this stuff just to get the basic infrastructure built. So like I let's do and what I offer to my clients is getting that built as in a way that is very appropriate to stage and does not require a ton of bells and whistles and tech investments and this, that and the other thing. Like, let's just get some basic policies in place. Let's make sure your payroll is running well, that you have a couple of strategies when it comes to hiring and when you're going to offer certain benefits and then you're off and running. I think the other thing is they have the benefit of perspective. And again, I use getting ahead of like some of the items that can take a lot of time and result in opportunity costs. So I am helping one client, as I referenced earlier, prepare for the their U.S. expansion. So yes, one part of that is helping them figure out the HR compliance, but another part of that is helping a equip them with the knowledge of things that I've run into in a growing retailer that took a lot of my time and again mm-hmm. out of those things so for example you need to have a strategy around diversity equity and inclusion it, it it's table stakes now yeah and that means something different in the US than it does in Canada so mm-hmm. who do you need to work with etc and then the other thing is I think one of my superpowers is that I'm very well networked and I have a lot of contacts. And so it's market intelligence or if you really want a well thought out strategy and to see what your competitors are doing, I probably have a couple of contacts in that space that I can reach out to and get you an answer fairly quickly. So I think those are some That's awesome. benefits. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks. <laughs> I two more questions for you before yes. we go into a new segment called yeah. Confession Corner. But so my first question for you is you position yourself as a heart-centered people mm. and, cult- and culture consultancy. Please mm-hmm. talk about the heart-centered, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I have a no asshole rule in life and in business Love that. and my personal value code means that I want to work with organizations who really do believe in putting people first and I well, I'm a big fan of Scott Galloway and he had on one of his podcasts he talked about leaving people feeling almost as good on their last day as they did on their first day and that's yeah really important and so uh, I am I'm a feeler I care about people I care about their experience with me as an individual with me as a professional and recognizing that with that care and concern for people you can actually drive better results people are willing to work harder for you if they feel 
that you've t- they're well taken care of, that you're respecting them as individuals. And so there is a knock-on effect for your business there. So that's what that means I'm, to me. I love that. Yeah. And I think that leads me nicely into my follow-up question. So over mm-hmm. the years, I have recruited a number of people. Mm-hmm. And to give you a bit of context, so my very first big opportunity came from someone that believed in my ability Mm -hmm. as opposed to the skill that I had at that point in time. So when I recruit, I tend to go for the one that no one wants to back. I tend to go for the person that has got the right attitude and I don't focus so much on the skill because for me, skill can be taught. So my question then is, A lot of people focus on the qualifications for the role. Mm. I focus on the attitude Mm -hmm. towards the role. From your experience, what are the pros and cons of each approach? And Mm -hmm. do you have a preferred approach, especially in the context of a startup, people are out there, they're looking for people that are going to help them accelerate their business. Should they focus on skill or should they focus on attitude? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. So I'm going to answer in two different ways. I, I think that there is a place for both. And and it depends. If you were looking for a specific skill set or competency that's missing from your business, you hire for skill, but that needs to be married with attitude, right? Like I've I've not seen good results come from saying, okay, well, I need someone with experience in, I don't know, public relations and they don't share the values of the company. So I think it's really important to combine those for more senior specialized roles. But for junior roles, I'm I, I am aligned with the fact that and especially in a startup environment, that you're hiring for attitude and the the potential of being a someone that seeks answers, thinks creatively, is willing to go beyond the scope of what is written on the paper that is their job description, that you can see being the a player in five years, just as you can see being a player today, and that may, they may be able to take on different roles and transfer that corporate knowledge. So I think there's a really real benefit to that in in early stage companies. I think the drawback, of course, can be that as the company matures and you need that very specific skill set or experience to help you grow, then you might have utility players that are not going to fit into the next stage of the company. But hopefully mm. what you've done is you've created an environment where it's natural that people might move into different roles or move out of the company at a certain stage and that people are rewarded and thanked for the contributions that they made and and that that's a like a natural part of the business evolution. I like that. So before we get into the last session, I have a question around business coaching. We yeah. talked about it briefly in our intro. Yeah. When I was building my businesses, there was no such thing as a business coach. Yes. And since selling my business, I've had the pleasure to be a business coach for a few startups on a very fractional level. I'm curious from your perspective, A, when did you decide you need that support? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And two, there's so many business gurus now. Yeah. From 15-year-old kids that want to teach me Amazon FBA to yes. become a millionaire tomorrow 
to to that's like me. So for, for folks that are in our audience, first time founders, mm-hmm. they they want the help. But how do you vet in a sea yeah. of gurus? And then maybe talk a little bit about your experience and getting some of that help. And what does that mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I knew I needed help when I found myself. And and I knew I needed help early because I found myself spending just as many, if not more hours. I was a big corporate job. And really, this journey was was meant to give me more time to focus on my personal life, my health and well-being, et cetera, and while also doing what I love. And I I quickly realized that I could lose those benefits or or lose what my vision was very quickly if I didn't work smart. And that's when I decided to hire a coach. And so I hired a coach that was recommended to me because they had worked with other people like me that had made the transition from corporate to solopreneurship for now and helped others build their business with sustainable tools and practices. So I was very specific about what I was looking for. And I made sure to talk to somebody that I knew that knew me well and what some of my areas of opportunity might be to recommend somebody. As you said, there's a ton of coaches out there and there's like the woo-woo manifestation of your business, very (laughs) tactical. And I would say, I think that the leadership and who do you want to be as a leader and all of that kind of stuff, like your personal brand coaching can maybe come a little bit later. But if you are looking to hit the ground running, you you probably want to speak. There's an expression and a friend was sharing with me, there's an expression in the recovery community like of Alcoholics Anonymous that is, you want to look for somebody that that has the sobriety you want. And I'm going to relate that to business and that you need to look to somebody that has the business that you want and ask them how they got there and who helped them get there and find somebody in that network. So I think it's really important to have people around you that are same industry, that have done the thing, because I think in the early days, you're you're trying to avoid wasting time, money, important resources by trying to do the thing for the first time. You want to find somebody that's done it and can help you. And then some of that other like more philosophical stuff and leadership models and all that could come later. But when you're building your business, I think it's got to be tactical. I love that. And Dion, whenever you're ready to figure out who you truly are, I have a course for you, Dion. Yes. <laughs> 9 off today. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to our last segment. Thank you, Laura, yes. so much for no being honest and and, and authentic with us so far, but let's get to the last section. Okay. Yeah, so Laura, we've introduced something really new, brand new, just been introduced, called the Confession Corner. Mm-hmm. So you need to come clean. What are the things that are keeping you awake at night that you either don't have the skills, you don't know how the hell you're going to resolve it, or you're thinking, what the fuck? What are those oh, that are God. keeping you awake at night? Yeah. So I think there's two things in this uh, for folks like me who are sort of knowledge workers and and selling our ability to create something for you or our advice. Two things that keep me up at night. One is, am I pricing myself right? And I think for a lot of people, specifically females and historically marginalized groups, 
we don't. We underprice ourselves and we think, and, you know, is this the right price? And so I struggle with like the fact that I know that I'm doing work that I probably could have charged more for. And so how do I approach that differently the next time? So that's number one. Number two is I, this is early stage for me and I'm used to having a paycheck coming in every two weeks. And I'm right now at the stage where like, I'm just on the precipice of a couple of things, but I want that bread and butter, that very reliable client. And so that's, am I doing the right things to help me find those clients? And some days I feel like I'm on the right track for that and other days I don't. So I think those are the things that that are the most pressing for me right now and that that, that help me or cause me to lose sleep. Thank you for sharing that. I just wanted to add, I'm on my fourth startup called mm-hmm. Schoolio. And I still think about those two things. Yeah. I've never had a steady paycheck. And I, I still continue to think, is this the right startup for me? Right. As I get up in the morning to get a paycheck and work in it, and it's nice to to know this is a collective consciousness I could be a part of. So thank you for being sharing. And that's what I was just going to say as well. I mean, we don't have the solution to what's keeping you awake at night. And and it's not our intent to try and come Mm -hmm. up with a solution on this podcast. But what is important is that you're willing to share that because at the end of the day, people are sitting there with very many concerns and things that are keeping them up at night, and they're not willing to actually talk about it. The fact that you're willing to verbalize it means that you're willing to look for support or guidance or advice to resolve. And that's the purpose of this confession corner. It's not to find a solution, but to tell people, you know what? We've all got anxieties. We've all got concerns. We've all got questions we can't answer. And it's fine. It's part of that process. So, so from my perspective as well, I really appreciate you sharing it. Oh, thank Laura, you. I did. It's been, I loved this time. It's been lovely speaking to you. If people would like to find out a little bit more about you, where would they go? Yes. So my website is www.peoplepeople.me. So you can find me there or on LinkedIn, Laura Hammond. Thank you, Laura. We've loved the session. Thank you so much. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Satish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by BlueMex. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit BlueMex.io to join us on Discord.